Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. The book of 2 Samuel and chapter number 16. The book of 2 Samuel and chapter number 16. We have been observing in the life and ministry of David that David is now going through one of his darkest periods of his life. And all of it is a consequence of sin. That the book of 2 Samuel speaks quite a bit about uh, consequences. And now David is on the run. What has happened is that his son Absalom has captured the hearts of the people. And now after capturing the hearts of the people, he has set up a rebellion. David, because he understood that he was in the wrong end of this rebellion, that he has gathered up all of his forces and they are fleeing from Jerusalem and heading out to the wilderness. As this is occurring, that many people have been popping in into David's life. And we're seeing that people during these hard times are going to be showing their true character. There's going to be some that are joining with David. And that's what we saw the last time we met was three people specifically who had joined up and helped David in his fight. And now we're going to see another man come up and we're going to see his true character revealed in the mist of this time. Notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of 2 Samuel chapter number 16. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 16, and notice with me in verse number 1. 2 Samuel 16 in verse 1, the Bible says this, And when David was a little past the top of the hill, behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled, and upon them two hundred loaves of bread, and a hundred bunches of raisins, and a hundred of summer fruits, and a bottle of wine. And the king said unto Ziba, What meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, The asses before the king's household to ride on, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine that such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. And the king said, And where is thy master's son? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem. For he said, Today shall the house of Israel restore me the kingdom of my father. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertaineth unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in thy sight, my lord. O king. And if you don't mind, notice the name of the person we're covering today, the man Ziba. And if we're going to entitle this Ziba, the deceptive servant. Ziba, the deceptive servant. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come up to you now, we're just asking as we open up the Bible once again and examine a character and we understand that every 
person's life teaches a message. As we now look at Ziba and see his character revealed during this time of hardship in David's life, that we would be able to learn and apply so much from Ziba's life, not only to be warned by his life, but also how to respond properly when we come to incidents such as this. I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, fill me, fill the every listener, that we could respond properly to your word and that you would open it up in a special way. Thank you again for this great privilege tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we now approach, remember, as we do character studies, we're studying the lives of people, understanding that every person's life teaches a message, and that now as Ziba is now approaching David, we can see he is taking advantage and his character is now revealed. The very first thing I'd like to show to you here is Ziba's approach to David. Ziba's approach to David. Now, of course, David is on the run. He is gathering up all of his forces and leaving Jerusalem. Remember that Absalom has declared that he is king in the city of Hebron. So there's a little bit of time before... Uh, <laughs> Absalom's forces come to Jerusalem. It's giving David and his men and the families some time to gather up their things and to flee Israel or flee Jerusalem. <laughs> but because of their short amount of time, they can't grab everything. And so what happens as they're traveling, as they're carrying things, Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth, maybe you remember Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth was the son of Saul who was lame. Remember a nurse had dropped him in the midst of things back in the day and he was worthy of death. He was a, a servant who, um, <coughs> who normally whenever a king would take um, charge of a kingdom, he would kill all the former members of the royal family so that way there'd be no challenge to the throne. But instead of killing him, Mephibosheth had raised him up and sat him at the king's table. And the servant of Mephibosheth was Ziba, who was also the servant of Saul the king. And so now David is riding out and Ziba comes up carrying two donkeys. And on the back of the donkeys is tons of food and bread and raisins and all kinds of things. And he comes riding up and he approaches and says, hey, David. So David stops and asks, hey, what are you doing? Notice if you don't mind as we pick it back up in verse number one. And David was a little past the top of the hill. Behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of asses saddled and upon them 200 loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred of summer fruits and a bottle of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what meanest thou by these? And Ziba said, the asses before the king's household to ride on and the bread and the summer fruits for the young man to eat and the wine such as be faint in the wilderness may drink. So David sees Ziba and David said, what's all this for? And Ziba says, this is for you. You're the king. Gives you something to ride upon. This is for all the men. How thoughtful is Ziba? I mean, Ziba sounds like a good guy. The king's running for his life. Ziba said, here's some supplies on the way. Here's some things to feed. He looks like a really good guy right now. Notice it goes on. Verse 3. And the king said, where is thy master's son? Where's Mephibosheth at? Notice Ziba's answer. Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he abideth at Jerusalem, 
For he said, today shall be the house, today the house of Israel, restore me to the kingdom of my father. And so Ziba says, I'm sorry that Mephibosheth couldn't make it, but he has other plans. Mephibosheth has got, has the idea that as soon as you leave Israel, as soon as you leave Jerusalem, all of the people are going to put Mephibosheth back on the throne. After all, he is the rightful heir. His father was Saul. His, he's the only living son. He's the son of Jonathan. Uh, <clears throat> or he's the grandson of Saul. He's the next in line to rule. He's the next person to rule. So with you out of the way... He's going to be in charge. And he has in mind this big idea that all the people are going to come up and say, you're in charge. Now imagine this. David has Absalom rebelling against him. David's running for his life. Ziba shows kindness. He's bringing in all these supplies. And then he comes up with a story that said, I'm sorry. Not only is Absalom putting a rebellion, but Mephibosheth wants to have a rebellion. Now if you're David and you only have this information... How would you respond? Would you be happy about it? Yay, another person who hates me. Let's just put it in the good column there. Now, David's upset. He's brokenhearted to think that all that he has done for Mephibosheth, he spared his life. He has treated him like one of the king's kids. He's put him at his table. He's put him in an exalted position. And now, from the words of the servant Siva, Mephibosheth, has, has betrayed David as well. So David responded rashly. And at times we do respond rashly. It is never correct. But David didn't investigate the matter. Again, it's hard to investigate the matter because he can't go back to Jerusalem. All right, guys, I know we're fleeing, but let's go back. I need to go talk to Mephibosheth. He can only respond from what he heard. And by the way, that's what exactly what Ziba was counting on. And so David out of a reactiveness, he said, fine, everything that Ziba or Mephibosheth is supposed to have, you have. It's all yours. Mephibosheth gets nothing. And so just like that, Mephibosheth lost everything. And the servant gained everything by the word of David. Notice says uh, Mephibosheth or um, Ziba responds to this. Uh, verse number four. Then said the king to Ziba, Behold, thine are all that pertained unto Mephibosheth. And Ziba said, I humbly beseech thee that I may find grace in the sight of my lord, my king. Ziba says, Oh, I know I'm not worthy of it, but that's fine. I'll go ahead and take it. Thank you so much for it. Ziba's thanking him so much. All right, I get all these things. Well, time passes and Absalom's rebellion is over. We're going to talk about Absalom's rebellion, but we're going to fast forward time and we're going to pick up the rest of this story. And so go with me, if you don't mind, to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 19. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 19. Some time has passed. Absalom's had a full rebellion. Different things have occurred. But now David is now returning back to Jerusalem to sit back on the throne. And once again, people are now responding to David because one it's one thing to respond to a guy who's fleeing for his life. It's another thing to respond to the returning king and answering for these things. So there's a lot of people that need to be answered for during the rebellion, whether their character was good 
or whether their character was bad, there's going to be consequences for how they treated David when he was on the run. So let's pick up and see what occurs. The book of 2 Samuel chapter 19, and let's pick it up in verse number 24. 2 Samuel 19 and verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king and had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed unto the day that he came again in peace. So can you imagine this sight? David is coming back. He's triumphant. He's won. Absalom is dead. The rebellion is over with. David is returning. And here's this guy who's lame on his feet coming up. Beard hasn't been cut. He hasn't washed his feet. I mean, it almost looks like he's wearing tennis shoes. There's so much junk on it. And he hasn't taken a bath since the time that David left to this time now. You could just imagine flies going about him, or like the old cartoon character, Pigpen, with all the dirt surrounding him. I mean, you smelt him coming. And so you see him limping up and doing his best to come up and maybe getting some help. Whatever the case is, maybe someone's pulling him in a wheelchair, whatever it is. But he hasn't bathed. He hasn't cut his beard. It's all uh, fuzzy and frazzled. The smell is horrific. And he approaches the king. What's he going to say? How's he going to respond? Notice in verse 25. And it came to pass when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king. The king said to him, Wherefore wentest not with me, Mephibosheth? That's a valid question. Mephibosheth, where was you? When I was running for my life, where were you? Where was you at? What happened to you? Notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 26. And he answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. This is Ziba he's speaking of. For thy servant said, I, I will saddle me an ass and I will ride on and go to the king because thy servant is lame. So what happened is that Ziba as David is getting ready to flee Jerusalem, uh, Mephibosheth's packing, getting everything ready. And Ziba says, don't worry, you stay here. You're lame. There's no use of you going. I will go in your stead. I'll go greet David. I'll take care of him. You just sit back and no problem. So Mephibosheth trusted his servant and said, okay, I'm going to let you take care of it. And so Mephibosheth or sent his servant. Ziba showed up to David and lied. Remember, David said, where's Mephibosheth at? Oh, he's waiting to have the kingdom to himself. Mephibosheth didn't know that Ziba was going to lie. Can you imagine how hurt he is when Ziba came back and said, Mephibosheth, the king ordered all of your stuff. It's now mine. Get out of my house. Mephibosheth kicked out of the house. Now he's lame. He has nothing to do. He's almost unemployed, homeless. All because Ziba lied. And so now he approaches the king. How would you be feeling if you were Mephibosheth, by the way? What kind of feelings would you have? Notice what he does in verse number 27. And he, this is Ziba he's speaking of, has slandered thy servant unto the Lord the king. But my Lord the king is an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thy eyes. Mephibosheth says, I trust you. I'm going to let you determine what's right and wrong. And I'm going to trust your judgment. Notice as he goes on. 
And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of these matters? Or sorry, uh, verse 28. For all of my father's house were but dead men before the Lord, my Lord the king. Yet thou didst set up the servant among them that did eat at the table. What right, therefore, have I yet to cry any more to the king? Notice his faith. Now, we're on the second point here. Ziba's deceptions revealed. So before we saw he lied, now his deceptions is revealed. Mephibosheth tells the story. But notice what faith he had in his king. Ziba lied. Mephibosheth lost everything. And, and Mephibosheth goes up and says, What right do complain what I deserve is death. I don't deserve anything. You showed me kindness and you showed me grace. And if everything is taken away from me, I still have more than I deserve. You know what most people do? Kick and scream and say, that's not fair. That's not right. How dare they do that? They lied to me. But Mephibosheth said, I'm going to trust you because I got more than I deserve already. I deserve death. So what, what does it matter? I'm going to trust you to do the judgment. Now notice what David does in response to this. Verse 29. And the king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou and Ziba divide the land. And Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let him take all, for as much as my lord the king is come in peace unto his own house. Now David said, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to mess with this anymore. Ziba take half, you take half. And Mephibosheth said, that's fine. Even if you had decided to give it all to him, as long as you're on the throne, that's all I want, is I want you glorified. You understand for us as Christians, we deserve hell. Anything that we have above hell is more than we deserve. And yes, there are going to be some people who mistreat us. There are going to be people who lie, gossip, slander. And you know what? We could throw a fit just like the rest of the world. And it's not fair. It's not right. How dare they talk about me? I don't get what I deserve. You know, there's something about our, our culture today. It's all about our rights. It's all about what we deserve. But we don't deserve anything. You know, Mephibosheth showed great grace to be able to say, King, I trust your judgment. And you know what? It wasn't fair. Even David's judgment was not fair. You know, we almost have a Disney outlook in life that figures that if we tell the truth and they tell lies, it's going to work out in the end. Sometimes liars get away with it. What happens when liars get away with it? It's fine. We can trust God. Because they have to stand before God and give an account. And we have to stand before God and give an account. But we get in this idea that it's not fair. It's not right. When Mephibosheth had the correct outlook in life. I'm a sinner deserving of hell. Anything above and beyond that is more than I deserve. What great faith he had. What a great response. And his response was as long as the king is glorified. That's all I want. You know, if, king, if Christians had the attitude that as long as God is glorified, that is fine with me, we'd probably be better off rather than getting in fist fights with co-workers or screaming match or pulling hair matches or yelling each other across the hallway. 
the idea that so what if people lie against us? Can we still glorify God? Is God still right? Is God still good? Do I still have more than I deserve? Yes. Can God's name be glorified? What faith Mephibosheth had, even though it was not right, even though it wasn't fair, even though someone lied and they got away with it. What great faith Mephibosheth had. But the character study we're studying is not on Mephibosheth, but it's on Zilba. Zilba went up and he lied to David. Then it looked like he got away with it. But we realize what the Bible says about lying. Which is the third thing I want to show you here. Is Ziba's lies are hated by God. Ziba's lies are hated by God. And the reason why we have to put an emphasis on this. Is because we live in a culture where everyone's a liar. Lying is part of everyday life. Whether it's little lies or big lies. People lie all the time. They lie to get out of trouble. They lie to get ahead. They lie to get someone else's job. They lie to become president. They lie to get someone out. They, they lie all the time. You turn on television and you see someone who is purposely lying to get their way. And we live in a culture where it is acceptable. But is it acceptable to God? What does God think about lying? Normally when we think of sins, we think of big sins, we think of murder or adultery. But how does God see lying? If you don't mind, I'm going to take you through a couple different passages and show you what the Bible says God's view of lying is. Turn with me, if you don't mind, first of all, the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs chapter 6. If you're in 2 Samuel now, keep turning the other direction. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. The book of Proverbs and chapter number 6. Proverbs and chapter number 6. Again, because lying is so prevalent in our culture that we think nothing of it. If somebody tells a lie, we shrug our shoulders. If somebody exaggerates a little bit, we, we just ignore it. If somebody uh, twists the truth just a little bit, it's part of everyday life. So much that even Christians need to guard ourselves because we get part of the culture. And we feel like it's culturally acceptable to lie. But what does the Bible say about this? Notice with me, if you don't mind, the book of Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16 Proverbs 6 and verse 16, the Bible says this. These six things doth the Lord hate. Now that's a powerful word. You know, we usually tell kids, you're not supposed to hate. You can't hate your sister. No matter what she does, you can't hate your sister. But here it says, these six things doth the Lord hate. Se yea, seven are an abomination to him. The word abomination carries something of loathsome, something that is the bottom of the barrel, something that is abhorred, something that when you look at that, you, you just, it, it, it's, a, it's a horrible thing to look at. What are these six things that God hates? Verse number 17, a proud look. God hates pride. Absolutely. But notice this. A lying tongue. You know the Bible says that an abomination to him, something that he looks at and makes him sick, something that just turns his stomach, 
is lying. Notice as it goes on. A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wickedness. Feet that shall be swift in running to wishchief. A false witness that speaketh lies. And he that soweth discord among brethren. Do you catch this? Twice in the list that God gives of six things that I hate above all things. Six things, yea, seven that are abomination to me. Two of them. Are the same thing. That's why six things are six things does God hate? Seven are abomination because one of them's repeated, and that is lying. God hates lying. He hates all lies. He hates big lies and he hates small lies. He hates lying to get out of trouble and he hates little white lies. God hates lying. Absolutely hates it. If you don't mind just to put an emphasis more. Let's see something else that Bible says about lying. Notice with me in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We could almost stop at that last verse. That is plain speak. God hates lying. He hates it. But yet it is so acceptable that even we are swept up in it and don't even think about it when we tell a story, when we twist the truth, when we exaggerate. We don't even think anything different of it. But God hates lying. Notice with me in John chapter 8. Notice with me in verse 44. John 8, 44. It says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. We understand that before we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, that we have a spiritual father of Satan. And Satan's a liar. And remember, everything reproduces after itself. So if Satan is the spiritual father of those who are not saved, guess what they'll do? The lie. Lying is a natural state for those who are lost. Lying is a natural state for anyone who's in the flesh. That is our natural state. We lie. That's why our culture is so prevalent. There's lying all over the place. Because it is our natural state. We don't have to teach kids how to lie. When they're two years old, you don't have to say, all right, in order to survive here in America, you have to learn how to lie. So let me teach you how to lie to mama. Well, if we don't have that course, how come they already know how to lie? Who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? I don't know what you're talking about. How many kids? households had the invisible man living in there because you asked, who did this? I don't know. How about you? I don't know. How about you? I don't know. Nobody knew anything. Nobody broke the lamp. Nobody stole that thing. Nobody misplaced this. Nobody. Mr. The invisible man lived at everybody's house. Mr. Nobody did it. Nobody did it. Somebody did it. That's the disadvantage of being the only child. You don't have anyone else to blame it on. We got more than one. Nobody did it. Because we're trained to lie. That's our natural state. Is that we're liars. And God hates it. 
Turn with me, if you don't mind, to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why does God hate lying so much? There's got to be a reason. It's not just because, because I said so. Why does God hate lying? Well, turn with me to the book of Titus, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'm going to quote to you Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19, where it says that God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should lie. Notice with me in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, and notice with me in verse 2. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, In the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. You know why God hates lying so much? Because it's against his character. God is nothing but faithful. God cannot tell a lie. He cannot tell a story. He cannot exaggerate. God will always be honest. God is always faithful. That when God says something, you can trust it. You could take it to the bank. You could believe it because God cannot lie. And the reason why he hates lying is because it's against his character. God cannot lie. May I say this? God doesn't know how to lie. Because it's so much against his character. And so because God wants us to be like him. And not like our father the devil. He wants us to be honest in all things. God hates lying. So how does this apply to us? We saw in a story where someone lied and got away with it. But we also see that God hates lying. So what does the Bible say about this? Well, let's apply this to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. The book of 1 Peter chapter 3. And the Bible gives a very practical application to the idea that God hates lying. Notice with me, if you don't mind, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and notice with me in verse 10. It says, for he that will love life and see good days. Now, do you want to have a good day? Do you want to see good days in your life? Do you want to have a lot of good days strung together? Well, here's what the Bible says. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. It says the very first thing you do is guard your tongue. See that your tongue does no evil. Don't use it to hurt people. Don't use it to lie. But notice as it spills this up, and his lips that they speak no guile. The word guile is in part of the lying family, but it carries the idea of this, that you tell the truth, but you tell it in such a way that you make yourself look better or someone else look worse. So you're still telling this truth. Now, we've all done this. You remember the time that you had to go to your principal's office? Or the time that you had to go explain to your parents what you did? And you practice telling the story. Now, maybe I'm the only sinner in here, but, you know, have you ever practiced telling the story? What am I going to tell mom? And so you rehearse and you start working on the details and you start trying to play. How do I explain this? That I look better. That I'm the hero out of this. That I had no choice but to do what I did. Or how do I tell this so someone else looks worse? So they're getting more trouble than me. That's guile. 
Guile is telling the truth, but leaving something out or adding something in or emphasizing something so you look better or someone else looks worse. Someone says, well, I told the truth. No, that's called guile. That's lying. When you did something wrong, just admit that you did something wrong. That's part of being humble, accepting it, instead of throwing someone else under the bus or trying to make yourself look better. The Bible says if you want to have good days, guard your tongue and have no, that they speak no guile. That you're honest in all your transactions, honest in how you're doing it. Even if it's something as simple as when I went fishing, I caught a fish this big. That's exaggeration. But you're doing it in such a way that you look better. Oh yeah, I caught a fish like this. And then it's a contest about how big the fish you got. And you're measuring it with air and fingers and, and memory. And <laughs> but you know, why do you do that? Because you're trying to look better. Well, the Bible says if you want to have good days, the very first place you start, the very first place you start is by your tongue. That it speaks no evil. That has no guile. That you're honest in the things that you say. You're honest with how you use your tongue. That if you did something wrong, you admit it and get it fixed. Instead of blaming someone else. You'll have a lot better day. The problem with lying is then you have to keep track of which lies you told to which person. And that gets complicated. And then it becomes very stressful because you're waiting for it to be exposed for your lie. There is nothing like compounding a problem with lying and making it worse and making it worse. And then finally it's revealed later on what the truth was. And when it would have just been better at the very first to say, I messed up. You know, most people have a respect for someone who's that honest to say, I messed up. And they're more willing to forgive. I'd ride with the police officers all the time. And the determination a lot of whether someone gets a ticket or not, is how honest they are at the very beginning. Yes, officer, I was speeding and I was wrong. You know, and they don't try to come up with different things. You know, the idea of being honest. Can you be honest with it? Most people will have a respect for that. Because we all mess up. We all mess up. But it's compounded when we get things worse. Again, why is this such a big deal? In our household, the very first the worst crime you could do in our house is to lie. And the reason is that as long as we're honest, as long as they're honest with me, I can help them. It doesn't matter how much trouble they get into. As long as they're honest, I can help them. And there's not a single parent who's not willing to help their child if they're honest, to help them through a problem. Dad, I have a problem with drugs. Won't a parent do everything they can to help a child in that in that situation let me help you through here i'm see you're struggling let me help you dad i didn't do my homework well why not because i didn't understand it well let me help you let me help you succeed does that make sense god's the same way as long as we're honest with god he can help us the problem is is that we're not even honest with god we won't even admit to him that we messed up. And he already knows the truth. Have you ever lied to God? Or am I the only sinner in here? Have you ever worked on trying to tell the story to God and try to tell God and convince God that you were right after all? Just me. I mean, 
we could even try to lie to God or try to convince him that I didn't sin and I didn't mess up. But as long as we're honest with God, he can help us. Notice as we continue on, just to finish the context of 1 Peter chapter 3. How do we have good days? For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him askew evil. The word askew is a uh, geometry term. Carries the idea that you see evil over here, go the other way. Don't go through it. Don't go by it. Don't go close to it. Go away from it. Well, that's common sense. If you see someone getting mugged on the street, you don't want to go walk right by them and wave at them. <laughs> go the other way. Somewhere else. Eschew evil. Don't walk into it. <laughs> so, guard our tongue, eschew evil, and do good. That's simple. Purposely do good. Choose to do good. When you have the path to do bad, do good. Do good. Yeah. That's simple. And then it says, let him seek peace and ensue it. The word ensue carries the idea of chasing it. It's kind of like the idea when a young man sees a lady he wants to marry eventually, and then he chases after her, meaning like he actually takes bath, not like Mephibosheth, but he actually puts on clean clothes and puts on deodorant and brushes his teeth finally and maybe even gets a haircut and he, and he does everything he can to impress her. You know, he's selling, he's a salesman now. He's trying to sell her a, a bag of, uh, you know, a lemon car, but making it polished and look nice, you know, and she'll figure out later on that, you know, he's a normal scumbag who can't throw his socks in the laundry basket and stuff. But, you know, he's trying to do a salesman. He's going after her. He gets her flowers. You know, how many ladies say, well, after I got married, I didn't get the flowers and stuff because he got you. But during that time before he, before he puts the ring on it, he does everything he can. He takes you to nice dinners. He brings you coffee. He shows up at work. He does everything he can to, to, to get you. The Bible says chase after peace that way. Do everything you can to go after peace. Amen. You know what Mephibosheth did? He knew that Ziba lied. And instead of raising a big stink, to David and said, nah, you punish him. You get, he's wrong. He's evil. He said, let's just have peace. As long as you're on the throne, that's all I need. And he was willing to be content with half of what he originally had in order to have peace. Do you think Mephibosheth had some good days after that? Absolutely. And so what we see here is a man who looked like he got away with things but one day he's going to stand before God and give an account. But when we realize how big of a sin lying truly is, it should be something that warns us that we should be honest people and truthful people. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time 
to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 920- Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.